This is For Advisors by Advisors. I'm your host, Evan J. Mayer, and today we have a very special guest in Mr. David Wood. How you doing, David? I'm doing really good. Great to see you today. How are things? I am great. Awesome. David is the Chief Visionary Officer and founder of Gateway Financial Partners. It is a firm affiliated with LPL Financial, both on the commissionable side, but they are a hybrid RIA, though they do custody most of their assets with LPL. So it's a really good, obviously a great relationship with LPL so far, yes? It is, yes. How many years now with LPL? So we came over, I started the industry in 1986 and founded Gateway in 1994. We came over to LPL through the acquisition of National Planning Holdings that they made in 2018. So we've been with, with LPL for coming up on six years. Six years. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I found you, David. I found an interesting article and we've had a couple shows about this topic regarding private equity or VC money or super OSJs and by lack of a better term, using potential equity buy-in and partnerships and how that's working on the independent chassis. And I kind of wanted to dive a little deeper. I'm not only somebody that's currently involved in it, but that I would guess, I would say is more pro it than opposed to it and get a different point of view. So, but give us a little bit of a history about you, kind of how you got started in the business, how Gateway got started, and then kind of how that's evolved into maybe this new model. Sure. So my, my second year in college led to a job in the financial services industry. This was pre-stock market crash of 1987. So I got in really early. I was actually sitting at a bunker Ramo machine for the stock market crash in 87, which was quite the treat and quite a great time to get in. So I started in a support capacity at a local broker dealer. That firm, after the stock market crash, ended up going out of business. And I subsequently had dropped out of college and went full-time into the financial services industry. And then a group of us went to two other small boutique broker dealers in the early 90s. And in 1994, I broke away and started Gateway Financial Partners. So I've really dedicated most of my career to supporting independent financial advisors. And I've really morphed. I look at, we've really changed over the years so many times, right? I mean, I look at how much this industry has changed. When we started back in 86, we could sell mutual funds with an eight and a half percent front end commission. And if we did that today, we'd end up going to jail, right? So I start to look, we've just had so much change. So I think when I look at the firm, it's really been trying to, again, set the vision for the firm and then look at how things evolve over time. I think that latest evolution is kind of what you alluded to with something that we call the Gateway Growth Partnership, which is our equity alignment program. Yeah, and I want to hop into that momentarily. Did you have a book of business in 1994 when you started Gateway? I did. So I started with my own client base. And then over time, I really recognized in order to be fair to the clients and then also to get really be focused on the scale of supporting advisors, it's very difficult to do both. So today I do have a couple of individual clients that I've had forever, but that is not, I'm not taking any new clients on. I've got only a couple of relationships with really very small clients that I've had forever that I really like. So I've retained them. How many years ago did you decide to go that route? Was it you know, when 20 it, years ago or was it more recently? No. So, I mean, I, by the early 2000s, I had pretty much jettisoned my client based other financial advisors within the organization. I've been very very actively involved with the public. So I still get a lot of referrals back into the firm. And that's been a great source of other referrals and leads for other advisors within the organization. So I refer a lot of potential clients to advisors within our firm, but I don't take on any of those clients individually. And how's the growth metrics change? You mentioned on a pre-call with me, just about $7 billion in assets now, which is amazing. It's a, a very large, very large amount of AUM. Where were you guys in 2000, 2010, 2020 and today? 
Yeah, I can give you I can give you a good example. So when I look back at national planning, we joined national planning in 2003. Okay. And we left a national planning through the acquisition of of the broker dealer by LPL, which was announced in October of 2017. And I'll just give you a number. So we did twice the total revenue, twice the total revenue in October of 2017 that we did in all of our first year at national planning. So just tremendous growth. And I think that growth has continued. We made an acquisition of a firm last year based in Wisconsin, another hybrid LPL firm. So we added on about 75 advisors through that acquisition. So we support about 170 advisors today in 26 states. Although when you look at the growth, I think the best is yet to come. And I think part of that is just some of the dynamics that are happening in the industry. We've got a third of our industry is expected to retire in the next 10 years. We've got an unprecedented precedent and need for financial advice, right? So we've got a big need for financial advice. We've got a third of the industries that's going to retire in the next 10 years. And that's coupled with what's happened in the kind of the broker dealer and RIA space in the last 13 years. 40% of the broker dealers have disappeared. So we've got a big contraction of the number of firms and options. And with that, we've got a big need for advice and retiring advisors. So when I look at where the industry is positioned, I think that the growth, the big growth for the folks that are really well positioned is in front of us. It's not behind us. And I think one of the industries that I look at that's gone through a similar consolidation is doctors, right? So if you look at how doctors operated in the early 2000s, a lot of doctors owned their own practice. And it was a doctor, a physician's assistant and a support person who maybe did scheduling and billing. Yep. And today, those doctors are all part of, a, of an aggregated group. And I really see the same thing happening with financial services. And I think one of the accelerators of that is our aging advisor demographic that is looking to transition. Those, those practices, in many cases, are transitioning to firms with a lot more scale. And I think advisors need a lot more scale. So when you look at what pushed those doctors out of the industry, what they wanted to practice medicine. They enjoyed that. They like seeing the patients the same way that financial advisors like to see their clients. The part that was the friction was the running of the operation. And I think that's where our firm has really stepped up. Use the word super OSJ. I really look at us like a superior OSJ because I think one, one of the big trends in the industry, those OSJs started to really aggregate together to get higher comp for the broker dealer. And in many cases, didn't provide a lot of support. And in many cases today in the industry, still don't do that, which is very different than the model that we've created. We've, you know, we've got about two thirds of our advisors operate under our brand and in our ecosystem. So I was was going to ask you about that. So if somebody wants to join Gateway tomorrow and they do want to operate under a different flag, are they able to? Sure. So we've got two really two affiliation models. We can support someone as what we call an independent business partner where they can raise their own flag and we can still assist with a lot of the compliance technology oversight. But the biggest area of growth for us has been really advisors. We call it in our ecosystem. So these are advisors that that number one, we always want to keep the advisor front and center. In everything we do, we're trying to create an environment where we're, from a marketing perspective, we're keeping the advisor front and center. The advisor is the key to the relationship. But what we're doing on the back end is we're taking away things like technology, marketing, 
client support operations, some of the leadership roles in helping advisors make acquisitions or get some intellectual capital. So we're just trying to provide more scale to those smaller business owners so that we can keep those advisors independent, right? We want to keep them independent. So it's sort of like a franchise model where you can just get a lot more scale under the ecosystem. Yeah, they're staying under your ecosystem, under your flag. And at the end of the day, they're able to scale their business, but also still own their location and own their clients and own their book. 100%, right? So that ownership is important, right? It's a 1099 model. The advisor owns their clients. We're not I do, want, to I do want to hop into that. Business. So two or three years ago, when, or about two years ago, you basically doubled in size with an acquisition of, of another LPL affiliate. Kind of, they joined ranks with you guys through the yeah. Gateway Partnership. And right. did that acquisition, was that also going under Gateway or was that, or were they going under individual names or were they already joining the ecosystem that was in place? Right. So it's a great question. So, so the acquisition happened a couple of years back. And when we did that acquisition, there was a retail operation associated with that OSJ. So the retail operation did change its name to Gateway okay. and the OSJ was rebranded and the company and RIA was rebranded as Gateway. But what's happened since then, nearly 20 of those advisors have come under our ecosystem, right? So I think it's advisors that we certainly give them the choice of doing what they want to do. We want to support that independence. And there's no pressure to do that. I think what happens over time is advisors realize there's just a lot more scale behind that. This goes back to the other challenge too, is that your more sophisticated, higher net worth clients, when they show up to an advisor's website and it's the advisor and his dog, I, in some cases, I'm not sure that exudes a lot of confidence, right? So I think part of having a contingency plan, having a backup plan, maybe having a younger advisor associated with an older advisor. We've had a massive success with sell and stay strategies where an older advisor partners with a younger advisor. That has been a major catalyst for growth for not only the younger advisor, obviously, but also for the older advisor who maybe has clients that had questions about what his future looks like. And with that type of strategy, we've been able to keep it, keep advisors in the business a lot longer. Our senior advisor who's been with the firm for 30 years is 83 years old and he's still in the office every day. So this is a, it's a cool business that you can do that, right? We're not out doing manual labor where our body is exhausted. Maybe our mind gets a little exhausted sometimes, but we had that flexibility, I think, to work for a long time. And I think a lot of advisors really enjoy what they do. And I think that keeps them young in a lot of cases and they want to continue to serve the clients that they've served uh, their entire career. Yeah, and it's good. It's good to have those kind of partnerships. So, so let's talk a little bit about the article that I had read. I, Merchant was a big company kind of entering the space. I know that they bought into some firms here. They bought into some firms elsewhere. I think that they, they, they took a decent stake in LPL. They're not a partner with you. They're is Merchant your partner now? Merchant is not. So we are not. We're not private equity backed, right? So I think this is one of the differences from what some of these other organizations have done. There's a number of firms that have created some type of alignment between the firm and their financial advisors, which is basically what we did. So part of this, I think, goes back to one, the culture of our organization, which really is relies on partnership. It's in our name, but it's really a core value that we have. So this year we did announce that we aligned our equity interests with that of 50 of our advisors and all of our team members. So we have a stock option award program for every one of our team members. It's based upon salary and number of years of service. So for every year of service, they're getting an equity award here. And that goes up every single year that they're here. And we've been able to, I think, use that as a way while we've really retained people, I think it's a really a way to align that interest and reward the people and create. So, that so you're, you're not bringing private equity into the fold 
yet as far as maybe not ever, but right now, no, no private equity or VC is helping to fund that. We have a private, we have a private firm. We have a firm that we've aligned as a capital partner, but it's not private equity. So I think one of the differences with that structure, not to get overly complicated, but private equity is somewhat challenged with taking a revenue stake or equity stake in both broker dealer and RIA business. So when you look at the typical transaction, most of these transactions have occurred on RIA business only Mm -hmm. because we're not private equity backed. We have the ability to do it on both broker dealer business, insurance business, and RIA business. So our structure is a little bit different, but that equity alignment program, again, is designed to align our interest with the equity alignment with the financial advisors that we serve. And I think when you start to look at this is that these advisors a lot operate under our brand, but now they actually can own the brand. And we've already seen that alignment with, uh, I think, a higher sense of partnership with the advisors where they really want to see the firm grow. I think very often when you look at that typical OSJ structure, does the advisor really care if the OSJ grows? Not really. I mean, they care about themselves. Now, I think what we've done is we've really created that alignment to where the advisor and the firm, we want to see each other both be successful, right? We want to put all of the resources we possibly can in to those advisors that are our partners to help them grow because we're truly aligned as partners. I think that's a big difference. I think it's the right way, right? So when you start to do this, I think it's the right way that the business should be run to create that true sense of partnership that I think in a lot of cases just doesn't exist in the industry. Well, the one thing I just want to kind of dive deeper into a lot of these deals are out there. A lot of these deals are dangling a, a golden ticket. And the golden ticket is that you're going to sell a portion of your revenue stream or a portion of your built book. And that's one thing that yours looked a little different in the article that I read, which is they're selling a piece of their revenue stream, but they're not necessarily selling a piece of their business as a percentage of their book, which is different. And I do want to hop into that if that is different, because that might be something that's completely unique from what I've seen. But most of these deals that I've been seeing come out are not only are they buying a piece of your revenue stream, they're buying a piece of your equity. And then eventually at some point you get access into a special purpose vehicle or into a different company. And at some point that company is going to go public or it's going to sell private and you're going to get a 15 to 20 times multiple and advisors are buying in lock, stock and barrel. Not all, but many are to that opportunity. Your situation seems different and correct me if I'm wrong. in the fact that they're selling a portion of their revenue stream to have access to the services and everything that gateway is going to provide but also to benefit in equity ownership in you guys or in something to some extent to have that growth capability, but they still technically own 100% of their book. Can you explain that? Sure. So I think let's just kind of clarify, because I think you've obviously looked at a lot of these transactions and have got a good understanding of where the industry's positioned. I think when I look at this again, to have a true partnership and sense of alignment, it's got to be a partnership and not where it's a one-sided street. So here's how we here's how we approach this. Number one, we want the advisor to have 100% ownership of their practice. That's very important for us. We're providing services to our advisors, whether or not they participated in our growth partnership. So there's no obligation to participate. Advisors that chose to do so, great. If an advisor decided it wasn't right for them, that's fine too. We continue to support them as is. In the nature of that transaction, so the advisor continues to own 100% of their book, we do purchase a revenue stake, either 15 or 20% revenue stake, and that's for a combination of cash and a profit interest in our entire organization. That's another big key component. I said our entire organization. It's not a carve out of 
piece of the business where we've aggregated those revenues, it's in the entire operation. So when we look at that alignment, it's in the, it's in the OSJ activities, the RIA activities, it's in the entire firm that we have. So again, if I look at a sense of alignment is not, hey, you get this little SPAC or this little piece of this or piece of that, it's the entire organization. So we also wanna reward growth. So as part of that, there's a couple of different cash options that we provided the advisors. We have a higher cash option with lower profit interest or a lower cash option with higher profit interest. We wanted to give each advisor that flexibility. A number of advisors have already used this to make acquisitions. So our multiple is way above what an advisor would acquire a practice for. So they can partner with us, use our capital in many cases to make acquisitions that they never would have qualified for. So we've got a number of advisors that financially were buying practices that were too big to buy on their own. They didn't have the financial resources. They're great advisors, but they didn't have the financial resources to buy that big of a practice. So we've stepped up with our capital to fund basically the entire down payment. So an advisor can put 40, 50% down on a practice, lowering their debt service, which in today's higher interest rate yeah. environment is really attractive to For them. Sure. So, so we, they can deploy our capital, I think, to really grow their practice. Here, here's another key aspect too. We want to reward growth. So every year an advisor's practice grows above a benchmark, which is tied to the stock market, right? So every year an advisor's practice grows. If they grow, we're going to give them additional profit interest units. So we want to reward those advisors that are growing. We didn't view How does this that work? Yeah. Look, can we dive into that a little bit? Sure. So it's not per se equity and gateway. It's a profit sharing arrangement. Well, it's a profit interest unit. So if you look, there's basically, you know, advisors understand a stock option. So it basically functions the same way that a stock option would, but in an LLC, which is how we're structured, it's a profit interest unit. So it functions just like an option would. So it's based upon the current market value and we're rewarding. And I'll tell you what the high end number is, but it's in the 25 to 35% range of their total GDC that they're awarded a profit interest in the company. So we really want them to be a substantial owner of the company long-term and to benefit from the equity growth. So if you think about this, there's a couple of ways to look at this. One, advisors very often don't have a very diversified financial picture, right? They've got a house and they've got all their equity tied up in their business. So this is a way for an advisor to get some liquidity today still own the equity, but the equity now is really look at it like a, in an ETF of all of the financial advisors and the practice that we've built here, where they can diversify part of their equity. That diversification is really cool because there's going to be years that advisors grow a little, and there's going to be years advisors grow a lot, and the collective pool gets to benefit from that. So our top advisor last year grew at 58%, who's in our growth partnership. So that growth of his practice is helping the entire pool of people, and then he's going to get additional equity units every single year that his practice grows above a couple of benchmarks. So we want to really have them. How, how does that get paid out though? Those equity benchmarks, is that upon the sale of gateway or is there a cash dividend that comes along with that? What's the end goal? I would, I would 
Sure. So I, I think, again, I think a lot of these firms that have gone into this have set an end goal and we really haven't. We want to run a successful firm that's aligned with our financial advisors, aligned with our team members and continue to grow it. We really enjoy what we're doing. The team is incredibly passionate about supporting advisors. We're investing a ton of money back into the firm to help advisors scale. So I think when we look at this, it's not doing this to create an end strategy. We're clearly doing it to create equity for everybody involved, including the advisors. Yeah. But we're not sitting here with an end game. And I think that's another key distinction between our arrangement and the way a number of other firms have approached this. We are not trying to lock people in. So if in five years, an advisor makes the decision to sell, they have the ability to sell their practice. They can sell it to us, to one of our advisors, or they can sell it to somebody else outside of our organization. We're fine with that. They still own the practice. They still maintain the flexibility to sell it. They can buy back their profit interest, cash in their equity, and walk away. So we're not trying to capture or force advisors to stay with us. I think that's been a strategy by a number of other yeah, aggregators. It's a way, hey, how do we lock these people in? Well, right? yeah, let's talk about that because I think that you might have the more interesting piece, which is we're not trying to capture the advisor. But look, I think the biggest thing, let's be candid, is the super OSJ models, which is why you don't like that name and I don't like that name. It's basically a thing of the past. And I don't think firms going forward want those, right? I think we've seen the big firms, the LPLs, the big firms say, hey, we don't want big, huge OSJs. We're losing tons of monetary value in giving higher percentages to advisors and promote those two OSJs. That's a real negative to those big firms. And hence, I've seen these private equity companies come in and say, hey, you can buy in. And guess what? When you want to sell, guess what? We're going to ask for a lot more money back. So you're kind of tangled in and you're kind of caught. Yours doesn't sound that way. Talk me through a scenario. Let's just say an advisor who was doing a million dollars in revenue, as an example, okay, joined you guys. They were growing, right? So they got their revenue up to two million in five years from now. Hypothetically, their, their growth rate was phenomenal. They got some private equity. They got some equity ownership from you guys. You guys have been getting their cash flow, which is a fair trade off for the amount of money you gave, whatever the multiple might be. I'm sure yeah. you guys are not killing yourselves. They go and they want to sell. How does that unravel look like? What does that look like? So it's really not that complicated. They would buy back the revenue interest, the same multiple that we paid them, right? We've got a couple of different cash multiples because again, we want to have flexibility for the advisor. Some advisors say, boy, I want to make an acquisition. I want more cash. Others say, boy, I want to really create more equity for myself. So we're giving them that flexibility to choose either way. So when they want to have an exit strategy, they buy back the revenue stake, cash in the equity at the current price. And they walk away. So we're not trying to, again, I think, Evan, here's our approach to this. I think when you look at independent advisors, there's two approaches you can take. When you look at the more captured insurance type of distribution firms, they want to make it contractually so hard for the advisor to leave, right? So they put all of these, we're going to put deferred comp in yep. so that the longer you stay, the more it costs to leave. So we can make it really difficult to leave. That is not our approach. Our approach is we want to make advisors so happy that they want to stay. Like, so I think if we, we spend our day focused on making those advisors, making them really happy and making them true partners and helping them grow at the end of the day, 
we find that they don't leave, right? So the key to our success as an organization is really threefold. One, it's to retain the advisors that we have. Two, it's to help them grow organically. And we think that those things go hand in hand. An advisor that's growing at 58%, like Sal Mata did last year, my guess is he's not going to go anywhere, right? We've got multiple advisors that have made two, three acquisitions with us over the last five or 10 years. Maybe in in many cases have grown tenfold. I don't think that those advisors are going to leave. They could and they can, but our attitude is we want to continue to help them grow and support and serve them. And if we do that successfully, then they're going to stay. So we need to keep the people we have, help them grow organically, and then obviously find new advisors. And I think, again, when I look at having things aligned, it becomes, I think, a good choice for folks that are looking for more, I agree. And, I, and I, more growth. I, yeah, I concur, David. And the way I look at it, there should be a value add for you guys. There should be a value add on both sides to you promoting that advisor giving them the money with the expectation that they're going to grow into the brand and respect, you know, grow your brand. I mean, at the end of the day, both should win in any kind of uh, trades. And, and again, the goal would be for never an advisor to leave, for them to see value constantly and stay with Gateway and see the continued growth. And maybe down the road, there is an exit strategy that's great for them. Here's my question. If they leave, do they have to sell the equity ownership back that they got from you guys? So if they leave voluntarily, yes, we give them flexibility in a sale or in the event of death or disability, we give them a six-year window to get out of their equity. So we don't want to force them out year one. There could be some adverse tax implications of doing that. So again, as we look at ways to create a partnership, forcing them out you know, the day that they pass away, we don't view that as the right decision. We've got advisors have dedicated their life here. We've dedicated a lot of resources and help to them. So we want to treat them like a partner and we want to give them the flexibility to do that. So if an advisor makes the decision to to leave and join another firm at that point, we would ask them to cash their equity in and buy the revenue stake back. But in the case of retirement or disability, we give them up to six years to to have that flexibility to, to liquidate the equity. Excellent. Excellent. The interesting thing about the RIA model, obviously all the assets are with LPL. Has there been a thought of bringing on other custodians to use? Have you gone down that that journey yet? Or is it just, it's such a good situation with LPL, you just don't see the value in doing that? We certainly have. Although I think at the end of the day, when I talk to my friends who clear through Schwab and some other firms, I think there's challenges at all these organizations, right? So I think at the end of the day, when I look at that space in general, I don't think there's ever a perfect solution. So I wouldn't say we would never have another custodian, but by having a deep relationship with LPL and having really excellent pricing. You've got to look at how LPL is positioned in the industry. They're really a dominant player and they continue to grow at a very rapid rate. So we think that they're we think they're a good partner to have on the clearing side and a good partner to have on the broker dealer side. We talked to a number of folks. Obviously we're recruiting a lot of people. I think we've had eight new affiliations in the last two months. So we're bringing advisors over from wirehouses, which is probably a broken model, but then other independents where I think I think the big difference is I don't think people are necessarily joining us for a broker dealer or a custodian, right? I think when they're looking to affiliate with us, they're looking to affiliate because they need more scale in what they're doing. And it becomes front and middle office decisions, not back office decisions, right? The back office, a lot of good choices on the back office side. But where advisors really need the most help is on the front and middle office. I think those are the solutions that we're really solving for. And those are the solutions that I think make the biggest difference in advisors' practice. 
Excellent. Another question for you. We're seeing a younger generation of advisors come up and we're seeing that older generation. I think the average advisor is like 62 years old. Crazy. So it's a prime time to get those younger advisors and older advisors together. But as you're recruiting, many older advisors need a lot of those other services that are offered by by platforms such as Gateway, where they'll have a paraplanner and they'll have assistance support and they'll have this and that and this and that, and they add all these tools. The younger advisors, many of them are coming out as CFPs already. They're coming out as planners. Their need is a little bit different. And some of those things that you're adding to your platform, may, they may not see the same value as the 55 or 60-year-old advisor that, you know, does A-share mutual funds and C-shares and really needs a paraplaner, needs all those services. As you're going through and deciding what services to add and seeing the value in that for the advisors your recruitment, what is your process and how do you determine where to put that money? Because you're the chief visionary officer, so your vision's gotta be good on kind of where the future's headed. How are you making those decisions? Well, that's a really good question because I think this industry is clearly facing a shortage of younger advisors. So those younger advisors are going to have the responsibility for, I think, servicing a lot more clients at lower margins than ever before, right? So I mentioned earlier in the podcast that I sold an 8.5% front-end loaded mutual fund, which was the norm back in the early 90s. That was the norm, right? So if you think about the barrier to entry, if I had $100,000 which today is obviously a lot more, but that was a pretty good payday. Today, one of the challenges is pricing. So I think one, as a firm, we need to be really supportive of getting younger talent and getting more diverse talent into our industry. I think that women are going to be one of the fastest growing segments of the financial services industry, because if you look at it, the old men sold products to people and the women are much better with the relationship. So I think at the end of the day, 100%. I think that's a segment that's going to really grow. I think that younger advisors, sure, they come out with the CFP. I think they still need the same support, though. I think that the support that they need, a lot of it revolves around marketing and marketing very differently. So we go talk to a 65-year-old advisor who throws his hands up and says, I get some referrals. I don't need any marketing. You see a very different attitude with the younger advisors there keenly aware of the importance of a client experience. And we're in the process now of eliminating our marketing team. And I say that kind of jokingly because we're not going to get rid of the people, but we're going to change the name to the client experience team. Because I think that the word marketing too often is thought about trying to do a seminar and getting new people in the door yep. and not providing an amazing client experience, which is really what we're trying to do. So when I look at those younger advisors, they're keenly aware of the importance of the client experience. We've got a number of younger advisors who are absolutely crushing it. I think they've approached the industry differently. And what's happening is they're using their youth. As Ronald Reagan said, right, I'm not going to make age a, an issue with this campaign. I'm not going to exploit for political purposes my opponent's youth and inexperience. They're using the same thing by turning around and using their young age by talking to clients and saying, hey, at 65, when your advisor is 75, do you want to be finding a new financial advisor during the most important part of your retirement age? And clients don't. They want a younger advisor, someone that can be there long term. So I think younger advisors that are getting the messaging right and providing a unique skill are really crushing it. So I think when we look at resources that we apply, we've got a very big marketing team. The marketing team consists of people that do a lot of digital marketing, full-time social media people, full-time graphics design 
full-time multimedia, we call it kind of a specialty in graphic design multimedia. So we want to take advantage of all of those uh, new and upcoming technologies to make sure that those younger advisors have the resources that they feel that they need to really survive. I think the older advisors that have more established books say things like, well, I don't need to be on social media. And I think that they don't understand the impact, the negative impact that has if you really want to grow. Now, if you want to coast for another five years, no, you don't need social media. But if you want to grow, you need social media. You need that public persona and public approach to be very findable. And the older advisor doesn't care about this. So I think it's about having a blend of resources to provide all of those advisors. We're very interested in recruiting those 60 and 70 year old advisors because we look at that as we want to be the succession plan for those folks. So oh, yeah. very attractive. We want to be there for them. You got to have everything for everybody at this point. So David, talk a little bit about recruitment. We were just on that topic about recruitment. Advisors, the older generations leaving, a lot of them are stuck in the banks. They're stuck in the wirehouses. They've been there for 20, 30 years. They're, a lot of them are considering sunsetting where they are. What are some huge benefits to them not sunsetting? What are their, what's a huge benefit to joining Gateway as an example? I think part of that depends upon the age of the advisor. I think if, you know, some of those older wirehouse advisors in their late 60s, 70s, maybe mid to late 70s, some of them might be better off sunsetting at the firm because a move at that point in their career, especially with an older client base, can be pretty difficult and it may not make financial sense to do that. I think what's going to happen is you'll see the younger generation that comes in, makes that acquisition. You'll see them moving out after that acquisition is made, really getting a better value proposition, better, I think, technology, better economics. I think that's going to be the point at which a lot of those clients come out of Sunset. Now, now in a wirehouse, or if you're maybe in an Edward Jones type of structure, you've got plenty of opportunities for that succession plan. As you move to independence, I think that becomes harder and harder. Maybe not hard with a firm like LPL with 20,000 financial advisors, but if you're in a smaller broker dealer, this is becoming more and more challenging. I think one of the other parts that we've created with our value proposition is a simpler succession plan for an advisor because clients don't like that transition. So when I look at, we, we've done about, we helped about 20 advisors in the last two years with some type of merger or acquisition activity. And some of those are internal, some of those are external firms coming from outside a broker dealer to our firm and our custody. One of the cool things though, is we've never done a clawback anytime that we've moved LPL to LPL or that we've moved brand to brand because there's really no friction, right? So if the brand doesn't change, the phone number, technology, email, support system statements, nothing changes. There's very little friction for the client. So I think we're creating more value for advisors with that consistent brand. Let's face it, if someone makes an acquisition, first thing they're going to do is they're going to rip the name off the wall and put something else up. Why not be in better control of that? And having advisors throughout the country, we have the expertise to help with that and find really good succession partners for that. So I think some of those older advisors at those wires are going to sunset there. But I think a lot of them are also moving. I think they're moving now because they recognize 
that getting out of a more captured environment is ultimately going to lead them to creating more equity value. And I think that's something that advisors earlier in their career don't necessarily think about it. They think about the income they can make, not necessarily the equity that they can build. Or Warner Brother point, both, yeah. Right, right. And then at some point they say, boy, I'm really building a lot of equity here. How do I maximize that equity? It's not going to be at a place where in many cases you don't, you don't own the clients. I think this is another shift with the wirehouses. You're seeing more and more of the wirehouses turning those advisors into a flat salary employee type of advisor. So they want to buy those clients back, put them into a model where they can even improve their economics even more, but then also maintain more control of those clients long-term, which is very attractive for the wirehouse. Maybe not so much for the younger advisor who's going to be stuck there with, in many cases, a very stringent non-compete. And as you've seen in the industry, broker deals that have pulled out of the broker protocol. That's another concerning trend that's going to make it even more difficult for some of those advisors to leave. And David, if you were, you're talking to a recruit and they're talking to a couple different hybrids and they're considering LPL, but they're talking to, let's just say Advisors Alliance, or they're talking to you, or they're talking to a few others, what's your value proposition for how you're different than the other ones? And I think when you look at our ecosystem, I think this becomes a very big difference, right? I think when you can look at a complete ecosystem that is as comprehensive as what we've created... That's pretty different in the industry. I think one of the challenges we have is we show up with like a with like a purple unicorn and people haven't seen that before. So they're often confused because when you start to look at your traditional OSJ and if they put us in that bucket and we show up with a purple unicorn, then they're all confused. So I think one of the challenges is really being able to articulate the value proposition that we've built because it's so comprehensive, right? We've got the ability to outsource human resources. If an advisor wants to put their employees on our payroll to eliminate the complexities of you know, the HR functions, 401k medical insurance, we have that ability. Advisor wants remote admin where they can outsource admin because they don't want to support somebody full-time. They can't find somebody full-time. This has become another challenge. I think one of the biggest challenges small practices face today is really talent. And the challenge with that is younger employees are looking for a career path. And if I'm a solo advisor, where's that career path look like, right? I'm a 40-year-old solo advisor, I hire a 30-year-old support person. What's the career path for that person? They're going to be doing the same thing forever. There's no upside, right? You offer 1099 and W-2 on your platform? We do. Yeah. We do. And so they could put their staff and some of their, get access to some group health insurance through the 401k payroll, all through that that service? Sure. So, yeah. so like when you look at all of the resources we built, we haven't done this overnight. We've been doing this for a long time. And so much of this is based upon advisor feedback. And I'll show you the level of detail that this goes. We have an online e-commerce store for client gifts and we control the entire experience. So we have a manufacturing facility about a half a mile from our headquarters here in Connecticut, where we've got sublimation equipment. We've got two giant industrial lasers where we can laser etch wood, plastic, leather, metal, we can laser and make virtually anything, right? So yeah. when you start to look at this, there's a great example of a friction item. So these are items that will have the client's name on them, 
right? So there's a lot of friction with that. There's custom manufacturing, but then if an advisor buys a gift for somebody, then they've got to go back and they have got a used Amazon box. That's all they have to ship it. So that doesn't look very good. So there's a lot of friction in something as simple as sending a client a gift. We've got advisors that have dramatically increased their production by showing the clients the love and have used that marketing store that we've created as one of the ways to do that. So by controlling that entire deliverable, one, we're able to bring the cost way, way down because there's no middleman in that where, right? There's no middleman in, in that process. We're buying things in bulk. We've got a very efficient process to do that. We do the full deliverable. So again, this goes back, HR, marketing, client gifts. So much of what we've done has just been based upon advisor feedback saying, boy, I've got friction in this. Is there a way for you to solve that? Yeah. And we're going back and solving it. And that continues to evolve. We are not complacent at all, right? So if one of our team members ever said, well, we do that this way because we've always done it, that person wouldn't work here anymore. That would never come out of somebody's mouth. We're constantly looking, I say to blow things up. I, I mean, I think that could be done in a good way, right? Because I really want to question whether that's the right approach to what we're doing and continue to push it. So we survey our advisors every single year. Uh, we spend a lot of time with them looking for feedback. We've got a partner advisory council, which gives us feedback on a regular basis as to what we should be looking at, whether that's technology. And we're very aggressive in the things that we want to roll out because we want to stay cutting edge and we don't want to be complacent because I think complacency in this industry is just a killer right now. 100%. And I think adding value, you're, I, I think you're right. There's a lot of advisors that are looking to go independent, but also want to be part of a team. And having some of that ability and that the marketing specifically, I think about the times when you're inside of a wirehouse or any kind of employee model, you can't advertise, you can't do the things on social media you can do and kind of hopping in with your company, understanding that area of expertise is excellent. David, thank you so much for joining today. If advisors do want to get a hold of you or interested in your model, definitely interested in talking to you. How, what's the best way of reaching you? They can reach out to me directly at dwood at joingateway.com. Excellent. And you're on LinkedIn too. That's where I found you. Yeah. Very receptive on there as well. So absolutely. Awesome. David, thanks so much for joining. It was a pleasure to have you on. For the advisors out there, hopefully you enjoyed today's podcast. Learned a lot, a little bit different of a model than what we've heard in the past. Definitely interesting. Check out David and check out Gateway. Looks like an interesting situation. Have a great day and look forward to seeing you on the next one. Evan, thank you.